It's that time again to open the pantry door and take a look at some of the ingredients that are lurking on the shelves. In our past explorations, we've talked about all kinds of pantry staples from vinegar to cake flour to turmeric and salt cellars, and most recently, instant ramen and sour salt. This week, we're exploring whether those expiration dates actually mean what they say, and also talking about how a splash of vinegar turned fresh chutney into a shelf-stable product. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. What are you up to? Oh my goodness. We are getting ready to go on the road. We are going to leave Saturday and head to Texas. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to follow along with your journey. Can you help our friends figure out how to follow your journeys? Absolutely. So we will be videotaping all of our journeys and posting them on our YouTube channel, which is As We Eat Going Places. And if you would subscribe and make sure that you click that little bell so that you get notified. You will be able to come along with us on our journey with forks in hand, finding the best places to eat, and figuring out how food defines different regions of the country. So excited. Me too. Because <laughs> you folks have been in Arizona for a little while now, right? We have been. We actually landed in Arizona just before Thanksgiving, and we've been staying at my dad's through the holidays. It's the first holiday without mom, so we've kind of been hanging out with dad to make sure that he gets through those okay. And um, one of the things that's been really interesting since we've been here is that we've discovered his pantry has quite a few expired shelf-stable food products, which kind of sounds like a contradiction in terms. Now, my sister is of the mind that if it's past its date, it's done. <laughs> it's gone. It goes in the garbage. I'm a little bit more pragmatic about it. So I thought it would be a good time to do a little research into that food date label on canned, boxed, frozen, and jarred foods. I can't wait because this has been a very confusing topic, I think, for a lot of people for a long time. I know a lot of folks think like your sister does that, you know, the minute you hit that expiration date it is no good. Uh, others feel maybe like it's more of a suggestion than a requirement. That's exactly right. We talked quite a bit about the history of preserving in episode 29, Kitchen Technology, when we featured the can opener. In case you haven't listened, and you really should, the technology behind commercially preserving food dates back to about 1795, when Napoleon offered 12,000 francs to anyone who could come up with a process to preserve his military food supplies. Nicolas Appert, who was a late 18th century French brewer and confectioner, won the 12,000 francs. However, it was a British merchant, Peter Durand, who received the patent, which was then purchased for a thousand pounds by an English engineer named Brian Donkin, who went on to open a preservatory producing foods preserved in tin-coated iron containers. 
Now, since that time, we've made many improvements to canning, jarring, freezing, and processing. So safety concerns related to our food supplies, especially here in North America, are pretty minimal. Now, the food date labeling system, and I have system in air quotes because there really isn't much of a system wrapped around this, and it will become clearer as we go through this. But the food date labeling system has its roots in the Industrial Revolution. As we saw more and more people leaving the farm and moving into urban settings, our food supply chain began to look very different. Where you used to know the farmer who milked the cow for the dairy products that you served to your family, that connection soon became lost in the grocery aisle. And as people moved further and further away from their food sources, concerns about the purity of their foods were raised. And this is really evident in advertising where companies called out the purity of their products using words like pure and real. And we have a couple of examples of these advertisements on the website. So after you're done listening, hop over there and take a look at them. The concern over food safety, milk specifically, grew to such heights that, as the story goes, Al Capone, or possibly his brother Ralph, who had a friend or family member become sick after drinking spoiled milk, lobbied to have dates added to milk bottles. And it's important to note that the Capones had a pretty mighty hand in the dairy industry at the time. Wait, we're talking about the Capones? We are talking about the Capones. Wow. The Okay. Yes, the Chicago Capone family. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so there's no definitive source to prove this story. However, as with all lore, there is a nugget of truth that this was wrapped around. And for this story, the information that I was able to confirm was that people were very concerned about the safety of their food as it traveled many miles and was being produced by someone other than themselves, or their local pharmacist, or their local butcher, or their local farmer. And labeling other foods likely grew out of this milk labeling process. This milk labeling process did happen. Who was responsible for it? We don't really know. So to better understand food labels, it's probably best to start with the terms. There's best buy, used by, expires by, expires on, used before, sell by, clear as mud, right? Right. And this list demonstrates the lack of standardization in food date labeling, which of course is an issue. The FDA estimates that over 80% of Americans throw food away after the food date label expires. And expires is in air quotes too. And we'll talk a little bit about expiration. Because they're unsure about the safety of the food that's in the container. Mm. This contributes to the 133 billion pounds, billion with a B, or $161 billion of food waste that we saw in the U.S. in 2010, 12 years ago. Uh, Yeah. That's between 30 to 40% of the food supply chain in the U.S. alone. Just trashed. Just trashed. Oh, that's horrible. Mm Mm-hmm. So back to labeling, as I mentioned, there are no standards for this type of food labeling. And to understand why there are currently no regulations, and there are proponents of food date labeling standardization, and I'll get to that in a minute, but essentially with the technology that we use today, food that has been properly processed, and that means that there was no contamination prior to or introduced during the preservation process, is preserved Mm. for years. 
And according to Donald Schaffner, a professor of food science at Rutgers University, properly preserved foods that have been on the shelf or in the freezer, even after 30 years, it's not going to make you sick. It'll taste gross. <laughs> It'll be almost edible. <laughs> It'll be almost edible. Almost edible. <laughs> almost. For example, foods like crackers and baking mixes that contain fats can go through a process called oxidated rancidity. So essentially, they go rancid. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a great descriptor of the taste of something mm -hmm. that has gone through this process. Chips and crackers become stale. Foods get freezer burnt, but none of that will make you sick. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to be super, super clear here. I'm talking about food that's been properly preserved and stored. So that means that frozen foods have to stay frozen. Right. You can't freeze them, thaw them, freeze them, thaw them, because that does allow bacteria to grow, and it will make you sick. And shelf-stable foods haven't been contaminated. Essentially, what contamination of shelf-stable foods really is something like if you had a flood and boxed goods were contaminated by the floodwaters, then you probably shouldn't eat that. You would imagine some of that would be like fairly common sense. And yet I know it's not. Right. So best buy dates, which include best before, used by, used before, sell by, are not expiration dates. Those food date labels, the expiration food date labels, communicate when a food is likely unsafe to eat. And they're applied to foods that will deteriorate because they have not been preserved. They include ready-to-eat foods like pre-made sandwiches, deli meats, raw meats that haven't been frozen. Abide by those dates on those types of food because oh, okay. they do mean that they will expire on a certain date. And that makes sense. I, I follow you. Right? Yeah. And another reason that food date label standardization is difficult is because it's really subjective. We're talking about things like taste, flavor, and texture. That's what labs like the Food Safety Laboratory at New Mexico State University test to help to determine the shelf life of products for different companies. So how do you standardize things like that, right? I mean, I can't stand the texture or the flavor of creamed corn, whether it's served before or after the Best Buy date. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and another issue is enforcement. Federal oversight of food labeling only applies to baby formula. And that's because baby formula advertises a specific nutritional value. I can't even begin to imagine what the resource requirements would be for an oversight committee team task force, let alone the cost to enforce something like that. Yeah. I also, if you don't mind me digressing here for a second, no. you know, I also think that it speaks a little bit to how much we in this country, we at least pay lip service to respecting the producer of a food. Let's take eggs as an example. I know that for commercial egg production, a container of eggs will not necessarily contain eggs all collected on the same day. Having mm -hmm. a centralized agency devoted to not only determining those guidelines, but then enforcing them would be impossible. In our eggs episode, we talked about the sheer volume of per capita consumption of eggs. It would be impossible to, to have that much control over eggs. As just one example, much less the wide variety of dairy products, the wide variety of meats that we consume, even the vegetables, even if we're just talking about the raw components, yeah, there'd be no way that right. one agency or even a few agencies 
devoted to that specific food would be able to handle all of that. All of that is so, so true. One of the things that a lot of proponents are trying to do is to simplify the nomenclature around this labeling system. Shelley Pingree, who is a representative from Maine, believes that the largest cause of household consumer waste is not knowing if you should throw something away or not. And that goes back to this, I don't know what this phrase really means. And she states that she's seen studies that show that the most cost-effective thing that we can do to reduce food waste is to bring some sort of uniformity, education, and sensibility into our date labeling system. Mm. So rather than having use by, best by, sell by, you have a specific language that's wrapped around this and people understand what that means. So there is a whole educational component that needs to go into this. The USDA actually goes as far as to say that food not exhibiting signs of spoilage should be wholesome and may be sold, purchased, donated, and consumed beyond the labeled best if used by date. They've also developed a food keeper app that helps to communicate this message. So that plays into that educational component that I think is so needed. We're far, far away from having a completely solid food labeling system, but I think that we're getting there when you're looking at the amount of waste just because of throwing foods away that are edible. Again, they're not spoiled. Some of them may not taste as good as they once did, but they won't make you sick. Right? Yeah, the amount of food waste is just utterly shocking. So what is your practice for these foods that have labels that have seemingly been expired. And has this changed how you might approach that? Actually, yes. I mean, you know, I I do make a practice of, <laughs> like most women, I have a pretty good idea of what's in my pantry and how long it's been there. <laughs> I do make a practice of going through my cupboard at least once a year, but sometimes it might be more like 18 months, and just kind of taking stock of what I've got and when it's going to expire. Now, having said that, I have been making bread lately using flour that functionally sort of kind of maybe expired in 2021. It wasn't the freshest flour and my results were good. So I I feel pretty good about continuing to use that for a couple more months. But when it comes to canned goods, I'm not like your sister in that if it hits that date, it's not dead to me. I'll probably eat it. (laughs) But if it was significantly past its expiration date, I would, even though it probably truly is very shelf stable, I I would feel a little less confident. I I think that that's really important. And it's really interesting to me that you just said the expiration date when I clearly said that these are not expiration dates. We still (laughs) still have have this thought. It's true. We still have this belief that those are actually expiration dates. And so it's going to be a tough thing to turn that around. Yeah, it really is. What about you? If it's far, far, far from the expiration, see, even (laughs) I, from the food date label, I will probably toss it. If it's one to three years, I won't. Yeah. As long as the can doesn't look like it's been damaged in any way. If I open it and it smells funky and it looks funky, then I won't use it. If it's been opened and it's in the refrigerator and it's past the best by date, like salad dressings and that type of thing, then I'll throw that away. Yeah. But this was really interesting for me to learn about because 
man, 133 billion pounds of food waste that has to be changed. What's fascinating about shelf-stable stuff is that there are many moments in history where we have figured out a way to make something good last just a little bit longer. And so for my contributions today, I wanted to talk about major gray chutney and chutney in general. And this is a topic recommended to us by Jenny Field of Pastry Chef Online. Thank you, Jenny, for the recommendation. This is a, a topic that I find really interesting. It's part of my own personal food culture. So I was really excited to get into it. When I started thinking about chutney, I realized I didn't know a whole lot about it. There's almost always a bottle of Major Gray's chutney in my pantry, but I decided this was a really good opportunity to understand a little bit more about this food. So it has origins in India and other parts of South Asia. And the word chutney comes from the Hindi word chutney, meaning strongly spiced, which in turn derives from chutna or to eat with appetite, which I thought was delightful. I like right? that. Me too. Chutney is a condiment or a sauce or a relish composed of chopped or crushed fruits or vegetables mixed with vinegar and spices. And depending on what they're made of, chutneys are meant to enhance the flavor and sometimes the nutrition of the dish they accompany by offering a savory bite to a plain dish or a sweet counterpoint to something savory or a dulling effect to something sour and sharp. Popular and common chutneys are made with fruits like mangoes, apples, pears, banana, papaya, tamarind, lemon, lime, tomato or coconut, or vegetables like carrots, onions, pea pods, cucumber, rhubarb, radish or potato, and even herbs like mint, coriander, or cilantro, cumin seeds, and I think you kind of get the picture. You can pretty much make a chutney out of almost anything vegetal. And really, the more I read about chutneys, the more I was reminded of mustard, a common pantry item that we discussed in episode 26. I think that was our second What's in Your Pantry episode as well as the traditional cranberry sauce, which was behind door 20 of our 2021 elementary advent calendar. Of course, chutney, mustard, and fruit relishes are all very different creatures, but they all follow sort of a long-standing culinary tradition of being a sweet, tart, or spicy companion dish meant to complement a main component. And chutney's origin in South Asian food traditions is undeniable. It is literally from this part of the world. But like curry itself, Chutney's journey out of India is entwined in colonialism, as is its evolution from a fresh dish to a bottled staple. Last year, coincidentally, I found a used copy of Michael Pandya's book, Indian Chutney's Righteous Pickles and Preserves. And he is the author of my all-time favorite, The Complete Indian Cookbook, I basically love this guy and (laughs) believe anything he says about Indian food. And his book on chutneys gave me a useful orientation specifically to Indian style chutneys. And he writes, quote, chutneys form an integral part of an Indian meal. A meal is not complete unless there is a relish or chutney of some description on the menu. Indian chutneys are nothing like their Western counterparts. They are made at high speed and are sure to please the impatient, end quote. As you might expect, his recipe for sweet mango chutney includes some familiar ingredients, sweet mangoes, mint leaves, a safetida, white cumin seed, red chili powder, and brown sugar, and these ingredients are crushed with a mortar and pestle. The result is very fresh and kind of sweet hot, depending on how much chili powder you use. And this is a very typical type of preparation for Indian chutneys 
to this day. During the British Raj era, Indian chutneys also evolved into English-style chutneys, pretty much composed of sharp fruits tempered by equal parts sugar and vinegar, and this was meant to create a longer shelf life. This particular style of chutney is now in the United Kingdom, popularly paired with not only curry, but also cheese and crackers, used as a spread on sandwiches, often with chicken salad, and even blended with other ingredients to make a dipping sauce for pakora, somewhat like an alternative ketchup. So let me bring it home to my pantry. While it's tempting to imagine that there's a fantastic story about Major Gray, who heroically served in the British Army in the 19th century, who fought hell and high water to bring sweet mango chutney to the shores of Bonnie, England, there is likely no such person, or at least his real identity has managed to completely slip by food historians. There's also no existing trademark on using the Major Gray name on chutney packaging, So basically, any brand who wants to produce what is effectively a slightly jellied sweet mango chutney can produce that. But I'd argue that at this point, it's synonymous with that preparation. I don't think you could put together a mustard chutney and call it Major Gray's. No, I think we we have a pretty strong sense of what it is, even when we don't really know exactly what it is. Growing up in California, my family nearly always had a bottle of Major Gray's chutney on hand. Most of the time, it was Patek's brand, but occasionally one of my parents was able to find a bottle of Mrs. H.S. Ball's Original Recipe Chutney, which is a South African brand staple. And for a long time now, Major Gray's was found mainly at specialty food stores or particularly well-appointed grocery stores, but now I know I can easily find it at my local Trader Joe's. In fact, that's what I have in my pantry right now. (laughs) And there's some fascinating interplay about preserved and pickled foods in gastronomy. Sometimes it's seen as more nutritious or less, depending on the ingredients, method of preservation and preparation, as well as dominant culture. Sometimes we think of fresh foods as being the provenance of the wealthy, but at other times, preserved foods, especially those containing exotic ingredients, are considered a luxury item, and such was the case of imported chutneys. One interesting tidbit that I encountered in my research was a June 1919 decision by the United States General Appraisers about whether imported Major Gray's Sun Brand Chutney should be dutiable as preserved food or as a sauce. And in the report, they described the chutney as a thick mixture of fruit with various seasonings, such as spices, and has an acid taste apparently due to lime juice and vinegar. The whole has the appearance of a coarse mixture of fruit in a thick syrup. Clearly, that what they're assessing is an English-style chutney, basically Major Gray's. One thing I discovered just today, and so now I'm, of course, completely obsessed with it, is Boxing Day Chutney, which seems to be a recipe that uses apples, dates, apricots, cranberries, and mixed spices, as well as vinegar as a mild preservative. And if you've missed it, please catch up on vinegar's fascinating history and nearly magical properties in our very first What's in Your Pantry, and that was episode 19. Now, the suggestion for Boxing Day Chutney is that you eat it with your turkey leftovers or as part of a charcuterie board. I think it sounds utterly amazing and I would like to be eating it like right now. I like that the ingredients actually kind of harken back to some of the ingredients that we talked about in the elementary advent calendar, especially the cranberries and apples and the spices. So I love that. Yeah, me too. And then one last thing that I thought was kind of interesting. So, you know, I've been rooting around with quite a few sources for our chutney discussion today. 
One of the things I looked through is a gift cookbook that I received some years ago called Traditional Cape Malay Cooking. And this has been a fascinating resource for me because Cape Malay cuisine is the cuisine in which my parents grew up. And this book includes an apricot and peach chutney recipe for which it requires you use apricot and peach jam. And that to the tins of apricot and peach jam, you add coriander seeds, oil, a medium onion, sugar, crushed chili, actually prepared fruit chutney, crushed garlic salt, and a star seed petal or star anise. You are making chutney out of chutney. And Michael Panda definitely makes a point that he thinks that fresh chutney is completely superior to anything you could get bottled. So to him, this is something you do as part of your meal. You wouldn't make your menu without including a chutney. And it's done fast and it's meant to be eaten that day or the next day. It's not something that you make and jar and then try to eat within the next couple of weeks or even months. <laughs> I mean, I know I've had jars of chutney hang around in my fridge for a while. I tend to think of it somewhat on par with a preserve or a, or a jelly where it's not necessarily going to go bad. The sugar might crystallize mm -hmm. a little bit, but it's that vinegar that kind of helps keep things from fermenting and turning into something else. Right. Which is interesting because it's a fermented product. Right. Too. <laughs> so full circle, all the what's in our pantries <laughs> have come full circle. Now we just have to figure out how to do chutney and ramen. And I think we're good to go. Mm. Yeah, and then we've hooked them all together. Right. <laughs> For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Please follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And don't forget to hop over to YouTube and subscribe to As We Eat Going Places. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this episode with a friend. It so helps us to grow this community. And if you would review and rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And I understand that Spotify may be adding a review function as well. So if you could do that there, that would be great. Ooh, five stars, please. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. And we would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We'll take some tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and travel stops. There are four subscription tiers, so we're sure that you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project, exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. So what could everybody expect for our next episode, Kim? We're really excited to bring you some interesting perspectives from Betty Crocker to how the women's suffrage movement was benefited by the sale of cookbooks. We're going to get deep into feminist food studies for Women's History Month. You're not going to want to miss this. 